Personhood by Talia Field The health of my stream, or the most pathetic fallacy. Zhong Zhe said, Let's go back to your original question, please. You asked me how I know what fish enjoy. So you already knew that I knew it when you asked the question. I know it by standing here beside the how. One. A wobbly line on the brave old bridge shows where a terrible storm in 1982 caused the once shy river to wash out trees, vineyards, and the lower village. A few towns over, ancient cliff houses plunged into another panicked river. People died. Consequently, measures were taken. Rocks cemented down, bed deepened, loose debris cleared. Two. It is worth the perfect cliché of the land beside it. Stayed old barn, cheerful vineyard, and majestic olive trees beneath limestone cliffs. It is worth the extra line on the survey map, though I'm not sure it added money value. It is impenetrably, fundamentally entangled, visibly obscured. Freshwater springs from alp-fed aquifers flow joyfully into it, from pipes, from catch basins, and from village fountains that have slaked thirsts, saying, here's all the water you need. It was only of faint concern during the industrious life of the stone barn, amiable donkeys warming the loft, moisture causing lime scale to leach from the walls. Three. With the barn transformed into a house, collapsing hill shored up, spiritless terrain planted, runoff redirected, town water and sewer accorded, certificate of occupancy granted. With all this accomplished, there could be meals and showers and a toilet and an agreeable bed for sleeping. Cicada's daytime rioting recedes at dark. As the river voice rises, Insistent as an impatient question, close inside the head, behind awake eyes. Is it a healthy stream? I didn't think to ask. Four. Without irrigation, the dry season brutalizes plants who can't reach groundwater beneath the stingy clay. But owning a riverbank, by right, I can use what water I can get. From a hose installed with pegs near the bridge, and from the silty pump, lavender, trumpet vines, roses, star jasmine, wisteria, oleander, viburnum, sage, apricot, cherry, and plums, fruiting and flowering, butterfly bushes and bay, and borders of spunky wildflowers. From these, butterflies, bees, wasps, hummingbird moths, Wood pigeons gliding from high oaks to lower ones, the occasional heron, the rarer eagle, curious gangs of jays, carefree yellow songbirds, 
industrious lines of ants and geckos and shaded scorpions. The sunning mantis, the longhorned beetle, the wolf spiders in their cave webs. Twilight swarms with gnats and mosquitoes, hunted by dragonflies, swallows, and finally bats, outlasting the remainder of church bells until the moon rises and the garrulous river rejoins a sky transfixed by stars. Five. Invisibility nags. Audibility teases. Always right near me what I can't see. Tease, tempt, taunt, dare. Sounds blind. The river roars, yet stays unseen. Impetuously, I decide to clear and cut the length of the riverbank, especially the prolific nettle and bramble. Save the healthy poplar, oak, a few wild box, and one small expanse of blackberry, minding its splurge of August fruit. Six. An espied stream looks smaller and narrower than it sounds. I peer and mark it along a hundred meters, and where my eyes go, so turbulences and gravel runs put a face to bubbling jumps and falls. Here, in plain view, the river breathes and rumbles and laughs, and now I see catches and swirls, rushing, dawdling, while dragonflies patrol out of sight and zoom back. Water hoppers stick. Moss adorns bald rocks. And I had heard it faintly, but now I locate a spring, prattling down the overgrowth on the opposing bank. A single hornet and a snake dart sideways. The sunlight falls where shade was resting. I commission a secret garden just above the high-water mark on the grasses, but below the level of the vineyard. A rusty bench on a patch of gravel. Seven. I can sit beside the river now and see things. A shadow turns and disappears in the deepest pool, where the flow slugs and sunlight can't touch, just downstream of ornery rocks in a hindrance of waterfall. More shadows move. Agitated eddies and the mirroring light protect them from uninvited eyes. Eight. Polarized glasses reveal an array of mud-colored fish, and I feel caught in a sudden enraptured vigil, rich with time to spend, here to purchase their belonging, mine. I haunt the bench, vigilant. One fish lurks most of the day beneath an overhang. Smaller ones slip over a gravel rise between the obscure pool and a smaller one downstream. A mysterious dark one rushes the little ones as they enter the deep. He scares them off, retreats. Several smaller fish worship directly below the trickle, hovering. July, August, a summer of insistent heat, no humidity, foregone ground, brown but for the drought-tolerant greens in midview, olives, 
cypress, sage, rosemary, broom, oak, poplar, pine. Every day, I join the happy fish, following their movements, the insects, the grasses, the skirting hastiness of the waterfalls repeating, the languid way we all persist in the single-minded flow for hours and hours. I am moved, a becoming that feels more like myself than I felt in a long time, in love with a life that has fish in it. Nine. A few days before I'm set to leave, a blast convulses from the innocuous trickle, a rancid bomb in the water, reeking of excrement. Fish scatter into a chaos of dissolved paper, weird strings, plastic, foam the color of overcooked vegetables, in danger, wherever that is. After a few minutes, the horror unclots downstream, the fish vanished. Night resolves. I cannot sleep in it. I am nauseous and sobbing, yet the fish are back the next morning, joyful staring until dark by their side. Ten. A repeat explosion a day later. I get waiters and go in to look. The once calm trickle now tirades from a broken pipe jutting from the slope, coating the rocks at the river in something slimy that stinks of over-rich waste. I investigate a new horse barn across the way, a shack used by local men to carve and cook up wild boar in hunting season. Roadwork done. Electric lines dug straight up the steep bank. A town water pump lets farmers fill their tanks. An open grate. Would caravans empty their septics? Or pipes from the upper village, centuries old, ignored? I visit the town secretary describing the problem. I fear that indicating there are fish, someone will fish them. This is a rural place, after all, where pilfering seems the rule. Truffles, wild asparagus, mushrooms, fruits, olives, nuts. Possession is only presence. I'm part-time present. There is a woman with an old house not on the modern system. The town... We'll look into it. Eleven. I must leave my bench and go back to work, though I hold in mind my fish, their daily circuits, their daring forays, the way they hang steadfast in strong current and shadow, even their strange attraction to the mystery pipe's secrets. Twelve. The fish are gone emails the one person I confided in before I left. There were huge storms. Rushing to the bench when I get back in March, decoding the colors distraught and swirling water, the tails of branches that look for all the world like fish shadows, I pass a whole day, two, in despair. A third fitful night, sad waking loss of appetite, panic, nausea, 
I didn't realize how much they had come to mean. Yet, in all my time in their company, was I their company? I hadn't once thought to figure out who they were. I expand photos, trying to remember their markings. I decide they are brown trout. The range makes sense. The kind of stream. I read, They prefer to hide, come out to lie in a favorite spot, in riffles or downstream of fallen logs where bugs and edible things float slowly. They can be territorial, but share limited spaces, especially with younger fish. They prefer a certain temperature for oxygenating water, otherwise they wait where it's cool, deeper, shadier, under carved banks, safely out of bird's-eye views. They dig reds for their babies in the shallow gravel transition between pool and riffle in even flow. Sometimes they leap for insects, change color with their emotions, camouflage to the stream bed. They themselves polarize light and focusing from each eye independently, take in every direction at once. Those most keen to kill them appear to possess the most expertise, the wariest and wiliest opponent a river angler can face. Finally, on my last day, a shadow, and another, and at twilight, I see two medium-sized fish in the smaller pool. I take video and photos, overjoyed at my amazing stream, the living miracle, joyous waters, and myself, the luckiest person in the entire world. Thirteen. In mid-May, another unreasonable spring storm pushes 30 centimeters of rain across dry ground, driving fast tributaries as runoff, ravaging dirt and gravel through the narrow riverbed. The smaller pool fills in. The deep pools outwash, graze and silt. I worry, pacing, the fish evacuated, shadowless, injured, or worse. They are not here. How could they be? Their small pool and favorite trickle swept away. An unchecked impulse gets me in waders, with shovel and rake. It's just one pool. It's just a little stream. Certainly I can rake out gravel from around the small pool rock, like a child plays with sand at the beach, working with the pushy water to dig it back out. I scour the field for medium-sized rocks, drop them around the pool as a barrier, watch the water detour around them. Hopeful. 14. In early June... A third, unusually wet storm covers what I dug, steals the added rocks, and leaves more gravel and silt than before. I cry with frustration, then spend the night listening to the keening waterfall. It's supposed to be the dry season, but it's still raining as I wait for any sign of returning life. A dark curl in the deep pool is a figment of bramble. I attempt another fix, but this time more purposeful, make myself stronger in waders with a rake and shovel. Clearly the gravel dumped beyond the deep pool has made the channel too wide and shallow for fish to swim up. So first I sling silt to the banks, sending dirty swirls downstream. 
Then I rake gravel into a center island, inventing channels on both sides that might, hopefully, deepen with the corralled flow. Since I read that fish like to lie where there are current seams, I try to create one. Fifteen. A commotion reveals a heron flapping awkwardly from my bench into the taller trees. I run, but the bird's faster. Does this predator mean the fish are back? Or was the heron also checking, hoping? My hand dug gravel island suddenly looks like a self-serve counter. It takes two days, but I shovel it away, towering piles on either bank. My hands are calloused, bleeding, and the river sort of looks like it did before. Which before? I don't know. 16. Heat of July, the sun unforgiving. Every grain of gravel has miraculously disappeared from the stream banks, and the wide, shallow run has grown even wider and shallower. The small pool I dug is entirely gone. The deep pool, however, seems deeper. Day after day, no fish. Despondent branches, tokens of light. I visit the bench less, linger less each time. Without the fish, I can't love it here. Their lives made sense of the whole place. 17. I mope up to the village secretary who tells me that they did finally work on the old lady's sewer. It's true. There are moments when the flow from the pipe grows stronger, but the stench doesn't return. No more paper or plastic. Problem and fish gone. Humidity weirdly high in August. The moist desert air pushing up, cold air from the mountains bearing down, producing violent early thunderstorms and 40 centimeters of rain in a few hours, sending boulders galloping downstream, threatening the bridge. When I emerge from the house between sheets of rain and look around, I see rocks occupying new places, including one blocking the pipe trickle entirely. Even the overhanging banks have filled in. The next morning, rake and shovel and pull some of that new gravel out. It drifts downstream, but the flow across this width is now too weak to recarve the overhanging bank. If fish anywhere have survived, they will not come back to this spot. Bleak abyss of the deep pool offers nothing. It is practically gone. 18. My remaining days, I avoid the shameful bench, the river rushing high and smugly now with the added flood water. A smell of wet clay, totally unusual for end of summer. Once or twice, I think I see a shadow beckoning. Perhaps a large fish survives somewhere secret where the storms didn't disturb her. 19. I ask my neighbor, tentatively, whether people ever fish in this stream. Well, they stock it down near town in spring, he says, 
But those trout never make it very far. Certainly not up here. But aren't there trout here? No. There are chub. Like there. He points to a pool near the bridge. Three or four shadows circle. We move to the railing. Are those my fish? Those are chub, he repeats. They aren't so sensitive to pollution, runoff, chemicals from the vineyards. This stream is not so healthy, <laughs> he laughs. Though, if more people like you buy up land and protect it, it might come back. I hope so, I whisper, though hope feels weak and stupid. 20. An entire galaxy of expert hydrologists and stream managers say that a healthy stream holds a variety of vegetation, aquatic life, and riparian zones and floodplains. Keeping the shores rich with native plants provides nesting and roosting places, overhang, shade, and root systems for stability. A healthy stream has tangled roots and tree limbs in it. Channels should meander, flow apart, rejoin, with abundant pools, undercut banks, boulders, and fallen trees. Rip-wrapped banks cause erosion downstream. Cleaning the stream takes away critical habitat for insects, fish, birds, amphibians. Engineering a stream to flow in a straight, uniform channel is to degrade it. Landowners are part of the stream's life, up and down, affecting each other. To maintain a healthy stream, they say you have to understand the watershed, the overland flow, the groundwater table, the rainfall patterns. Watershed also determines the quality of life for fish, for example, who don't simply exist in one isolated stretch. Streams must provide cool spots and abundant oxygen through fallen logs and rocks that mix air and water and lots of riffle areas. Most importantly, the stream's course changes as channels shift in storms and runs and riffles adjust to flow and current, move in predictable ways, their serpent-like energy carving out one side and then the other. Other patterns repeat. Waterfall, pool, riffle, and run. It's how the flow must operate. Dropping rocks where there needed to be outflow, a riffle, and then a run, is nonsensical. A healthy stream reshapes as riparian zones and floodplains absorb flood energy so that steep or sparsely vegetated banks don't erode. Too steep banks also force water too fast. Having engineers come in and straighten channels or put boulders along to fortify them end up doing the opposite and ruins the habitat in the process. Places with infrequent rains have the worst oil and hydrocarbon runoff. Air pollution comes from rainwater, stormwater runoff, local vineyards, farming, traffic. Silt and clay clog the gravel where fish and insects breed, a problem called embeddedness. One expert suggests having a stream vision that you share with your family and neighbors. They say that streams can heal themselves, given time and no interference. 21. Would it change the understanding of the stream, the fish, my obsession with rakes and rocks, if I reveal that just before clearing the banks and spotting the fish, 
I suffered a betrayal of the most devastating kind. Would Moore's story inform the flow of it? Make it gain or lose power? Render it all banal? Would more information change the question of where the stream begins and ends? They say that to be godlike is to know space and time all at once. And yet, even in the first garden, where God was omniscient and none of the creatures had knowledge of good or evil, tricks and betrayals unfolded that no one seemed to have a handle on. 22. The waterfall entirely caved this spring, leaving only one flat, shallow pool with a long run leading to the riffles. Still, fish dart in and out of recut overhangs, feed in the seams, and hang out in the quieter flow. A heron swoops down from the north, lands gracefully in the water. As I run from the house, she lifts her wings and flaps downstream with her catch. By midsummer, most fish are gone. At dinner, someone suggests installing a painted heron decoy on the bank. Someone else says, put bigger rocks in the river so the waterfall will dig the deep pool again. My neighbor laughs. Just hang a net across the entire stream from side to side. 23. In more than one country, rivers have been granted the right of personhood in the recognition that they possess the imagination and sacred feeling of those who count on them. In the High Court of Uttarakhand at Nainital. Writ Petition, PIL, number 126 of 2014. Mohammed Salim, Petitioner versus State of Uttarakhand and others. Respondents, 17. All the Hindus have deep ashta of rivers Ganges and Yamuna, and they collectively connect with these rivers. Rivers Ganges and Yamuna are central to the existence of half of Indian population and their health and well-being. The rivers have provided both physical and spiritual sustenance to all of us from time immemorial. Rivers Ganges and Yamuna have spiritual and physical sustenance. They support and assist both the life and natural resources and health and well-being of the entire community. Rivers Ganges and Yamuna are breathing, living, and sustaining the communities from mountains to sea. 18. The Constitution of Ganges Management Board is necessary for the purpose of irrigation, rural and urban water supply, hydropower generation, navigation, industries. There is utmost expediency to give legal status as a living person slash legal entity to rivers Ganges and Yamuna R slash W articles 48-A and 51-A-G of the Constitution of India. 19. Accordingly, while exercising the parents' patria jurisdiction, the rivers Ganges and Yamuna all their tributaries, streams, every natural water flowing with flow continuously or intermittently of these rivers are declared as juristic slash legal persons slash living entities having the status of a legal person with all corresponding rights, duties, and liabilities of a living person in order to preserve and conserve rivers Ganges and Yamuna. The director of Namami Ganga, the chief secretary of the state of Uttarakhand, and the Advocate General of the State of Uttarakhand are hereby declared persons in loco parentis as the human face to protect, conserve, and preserve rivers Ganges and Yamuna and their tributaries. 
These officers are bound to uphold the status of rivers Ganges and Yamuna and also to promote the health and well-being of these rivers. 20. The Advocate General shall represent at all legal proceedings to protect the interest of rivers Ganges and Yamuna. 21. The presence of the Secretary, Ministry of Water Resources, River Development, and Ganges Rejuvenation is dispensed with. 22. Let a copy of this order be sent by the registry to the Chief Secretary of the State of Uttarakhand forthwith. Personhood by Talia Field. Designed and produced by Ben Williams. Performed by April Mathis, Shannon Tayo, and Ben Williams. Recorded at the Collapsible Hole in New York City.